Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Robin Hansen will join us to discuss the elephant in the brain. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, perhaps the less we know about our ugly motives, the better. And this concept is now explored in the new book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. The authors Kevin Simler and Dr. Robin Hansen explore this issue for a general audience, and we're lucky enough to have Dr. Robin Hansen. He's an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. He has doctorates in social science, master's degrees in physics and philosophy, and nine years experience as a research programmer in artificial intelligence. He has authored numerous academic publications and is the author of The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth. And again, his new release with Kevin Simler is The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And Dr. Hansen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. It's great to be here. Certainly, our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, The Elephant in the Brain. You talk about the hidden motives we all have. I'm curious, why did you decide to write this book? This is the book I wish I would have read when I started my career in social science. I used to be in physics and computer science, and in those areas, I noticed that people are really eager for innovation, and they're willing to pay high costs to get it. Uh, but it's really hard to find big innovations. And I noticed that in social science, there seemed to be really big improvements that were possible, and that's why I switched to social science. But what I didn't realize is that the reason why it's so easy to find big improvements is that we hardly ever adopt them, (laughs) which raises the question, why not? And that was one puzzle among many that I kept accumulating in social science. Uh, Various ways our standard theories of our behavior just don't make sense in terms of a lot of the details of our behavior. And this book is my attempt to explain (laughs) many of these puzzles, including the puzzle of why we're so uninterested in social science reforms. One of those things that seems to creep up very often in social science, economics, and particular interests. Well, we claim actually that you are acting in your best interests. You are just not acting in the interests you think you have. Evolution produced you as a well-honed machine to get what it thinks you want, uh, but it also created this conscious mind of yours, and your conscious mind is really not the king or president of your mind. It's the press secretary. Its job is to make up good excuses to explain to other people why you've been doing what you've been doing. Its job is not to know why you're really doing what you're doing. It's sort of making up the best story it can. Exactly. So what is it that really guides our behavior then? Well, our motives vary from area to area, but they're relatively selfish. They're more selfish than we like to admit. So, for example, we say that we go to the doctor and we push other people to go to the doctor because uh, that makes them healthier and it makes ourselves healthier. But in fact, it more seems that we push other people to go in order to show that we care about them, and we let other people push us to let them show that they care about us. Uh, We go to school not to learn the material, but to show off that we are smart and conscientious and conformist. We talk even in conversation to show off our various connections and and knowledge and abilities rather than to share information. Uh, Showing off is a lot of why we do the things we do. 
And why is it that we hide our real motives then? We often don't, aren't even aware ourselves or our real motives. Many people think they go to school to learn the material. Many people think they go to the doctor to get well. And yet continues without our knowing. Why is it that we're unaware of it? Well, that's the big question. So our ancestors uh, developed social norms, that is rules. And a key part of human behavior for a million years was that we had these rules. And if people violated a rule, you were supposed to tell other people about it and make them stop and punish them uh, in ways that would make that stop. So we are really attentive to the rules we might be violating. And a lot of the rules we have are in terms of motives. If I hit you on purpose, that's not okay. But if I hit you accidentally, well, that is okay. And so we are constantly looking at what we're doing and, and wondering what sort of motive story we could spin about what we're doing that would make it okay. And if we reinterpret our actions? Yeah, we want to interpret our actions as not violating any of the norms. And so showing off is actually one of the norms that we have. We're not supposed to show off. We're not supposed to create sub-coalitions. We're not supposed to threaten violence or brag. And often the things we're actually doing are violating these norms. You mentioned that our real motives are, are hidden even from ourselves? There's a famous set of split-brain experiments that took place about a half century ago with patients whose two halves of their brain have been broken apart from each other. And this uh, one half of your brain controls one half of your body, one eye, one ear, one arm, one leg. And with these split-brain patients, you can split them apart and you can talk to one in a way that the other can't hear. So you can act, ask the split-brain patient to stand up and then it will start to stand up using the side of the body it controls. And then you can ask the other side of the brain, why did you stand up? And the honest answer should be, I don't know. You were talking to the other half of my brain, obviously. But that's not what happens. Uh, what happens is it make up excuses, any plausible excuse it could find. So it might say, I wanted to get a Coke. And that's the kind of mind you have. It's just always ready to make up excuses for what you're doing, even when it doesn't really know. Well, one of our hemispheres is more in control of talking, uh, but both of them will you know, make up excuses as necessary. Well, how does this then manifest then in everyday life? So our book, uh, the first third goes over the general idea of why we would have hidden motives and not be aware of them. And the last two thirds is going over 10 areas of life. In each area, we're trying to say what the usual story is and what the puzzles are and what the hidden motives that make sense of the puzzles. So we go through a lot of areas and that includes, for example, body language and laughter. So people are laughing all the time. They like to laugh and they really don't know why, which you might think is puzzling, given how important it is. We think we laugh because something is funny or incongruous or maybe you know embarrasses somebody. Uh, but in fact, we laugh 30 times more often when we're around other people, when we're by ourselves. 80% of our laughter has nothing to do with a joke. People who are talking laugh 50% more often than people who are listening. And we often laugh at things we'd be really embarrassed to say straight out. So for example, we might laugh at a joke about dropping the soap in a prison shower. Ha ha ha, someone might get raped. <laughs> That's funny. And these things don't make sense from our usual story's point of view. Uh, but an alternative story that does make sense is that laughter is a play signal. Uh, animals play, and when they play, they go through the motions of doing something real, like fighting or running or chasing, but they don't actually hurt each other. And they need a signal, signal that says, if someone seems like they might be getting hurt, that they say, okay, we're, we're still playing, it's still okay, nobody's really hurt here. And laughter is that sort of signal for humans. And humans are very social, and so a lot of our play is social play. We are playing with norms, playing with pretending to violate them or pretending to enforce them, even though we're not really intending to do so. And that's why a lot of our laughter is about norm violation, i.e. dropping the soap. And this comes up, you mentioned in, in other things too. Sure. So our usual story about conversation, what is it for, is to share information. But if we were just using conversation to share information, we would focus on the most valuable things we had to say, uh, we would 
allow conversations to jump from topic to topic, uh, depending on whatever was the most important thing we wanted to say. And we would keep track of debts. We would say, well, I've told you three useful things lately. You haven't told me anything. It's your turn to tell me something useful. But these, this isn't how conversation goes. Uh, we, in fact, talk about a lot of pretty trivial things. We don't really keep track of debts of other people, what they're saying. And we're actually more eager to talk, talk than to listen. If, if in talking were about information, we mainly want to listen, and then we be, have to be convinced to talk because it's our turn. And so more plausibly, talking is usually about showing off our mental backpack of tools and resources. That is, uh, we, we meet the challenge. Wherever the conversation goes, I will have an interesting thing to say. And I will show you that wherever our lives would go together, I would have resources that you would find useful. I have a great backpack of tools, and I can take one out and hand it to you, and that will be useful. So we show off uh, our knowledge and connections and wit uh, by just following a trivial conversation wherever it goes and showing we have something to say about everything. Is there, in some sense, those who do this a little more elegantly than others? Yeah, so showing off is a taboo, but a lot of what we're doing with our lives is showing off, and that's exactly why we aren't aware of it. Evolution has made our conscious minds be unaware of the fact that we are primarily showing off in a lot of these areas. And we make up other excuses. So in our minds, we think we're doing something else. We think, uh, gee, that was an interesting TV show that I'm telling you about. Or we think, uh, you really need to get to the doctor. Or we think, uh, that would be an interesting class to take. And we tell ourselves we have these other motives. And that's because uh, if somebody were to challenge us uh, and accuse us of bragging, we would be able to sincerely be offended and deny it. Well, you list a number of these in your book of life, art, charity, education, medicine, religion, all, all these things. Does this same uh, undercurrent apply to all these areas of life? They're not all about showing off necessarily. So like laughter, as we just discussed, isn't entirely about showing off. But they're all about things that we would be less willing to admit straight out as having our agenda. And we go over 10 areas of life, but there's probably another 10 or 20 areas of life that we could analyze and go over that we might find hidden agendas there. So in some sense, we're just starting this effort to find the hidden agendas in life. So maybe uh, some of them where people would think that they're doing things altruistically, purely, I mean, things like religion. So we're just drawing on the standard literature and the social science of religion that says religion seems to be primarily about bonding communities together. And one of the ways you do that is you pay costs to be together. You have arbitrary rules and rituals you must follow, and you even have arbitrary strange beliefs. And your willingness to adopt strange beliefs and strange rituals and patterns shows your commitment to the group. And groups that have more of those strong uh, rules and beliefs that they show that they are attached to each other via, they actually can rely on each other more. Uh, and it turns out in our lives, uh, we look around the world around us, people who are religious and who have more religious activity, they actually are better in almost all the usual ways you'd want someone to be better. They make more money, they have uh, marriages that last longer, they have less crime, less drugs, they live longer. Uh, religion does seem to actually work for people on average. But does the same sort of thing apply to politics that I Right. Now, in politics, uh, we are more facing and interacting with others who don't share our political views. So while in religion, we might join a religion and then primarily interact with others who share our religion, in politics, we're often interacting with others who don't share our politics. Uh, politics is still largely about showing loyalty, but it's about showing loyalty to the people who share our political inclinations against the other side. And so we tell ourselves that we are voting and, and participating in politics in order to uh, make our nation or city or world better by inducing better politics, excuse me, inducing better policies. 
politics is not about policy primarily. <laughs> we are mainly trying to show our loyalty to our side. We don't actually care that much about the actual policies that result uh, compared to showing that we are loyal to our side. So uh, we're not we don't pay actually that much attention to whether our politicians are effective politicians in terms of being able to work with others and get things done and pass legislation. We care a lot more about the positions they take, even if those positions aren't going to affect any particular votes they come up with. And we don't really care very much personally how how pivotal we will be in an election for deciding if we're going to vote and participate. That has a pretty small influence on our participation. So we think of ourselves as like a Dudley do-right, someone trying to do well, but uh, we suggest that you're more like an apparatchik. An apparatchik was a Soviet bureaucrat who was, uh, had to be very loyal to the party and to show their loyalty to the party. Uh, a famous uh, case when there was a big uh, meeting and the subject of Stalin came up when he was still alive. And he wasn't even in the room, but everybody felt a need to show loyalty to Stalin by standing up and clapping at his mention of his name. And they stood clapping for, for five minutes, then 10 minutes. And everybody was thinking, if I sit down first, people will think I'm disloyal, and that will be bad. So eventually somebody sat down first, and then whew, everybody else could sit down next. And then that person went to Siberia that night, because in fact, they did interpret it as disloyalty. So our world isn't that bad, but we are constantly trying to show our loyalty to our political side uh, via our actions. So we do actually have strong preferences in uh, lovers and, and who we marry and who we work with and have as friends that they share our political views. Does this imply then that any kind of political system might be inherently flawed because it favors the loyalty to the group rather than uh, loyalty to any kind of policy itself? Well, just more generally, in all of these different areas, we have a standard story about what the institution is for, i.e. politics is for making better policy or medicine is for making us healthy. And our actual motivations with respect to these institutions are something else. We have a different priority in politics. It's showing loyalty in medicine. It's showing that we care. And that means these institutions do a pretty bad job of achieving the thing we say we're trying to do with them. Politics does a bad job of changing policy. Medicine does a bad job of making us healthy. From the point of view of the things we are trying to get out of them, they do a good job. They are effective at letting us show our loyalty, uh, etc. Uh, but if we want institutions that actually better achieve the things we say we want for them, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, but as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the problems is we've known for a long time how to improve these institutions to better achieve the things we say we want. We know how to make medicine different in order to be healthier. We know how to make schools different in order to learn more. We know how to make politics different in order to be more effective at choosing policies. But when we design these new changes and then we propose them to people, they're just not interested. And plausibly, the reason they're not interested is that they realize they don't actually want the things they say they want. And so they're not very interested in new reforms that will get the more of the things they say they want. So, so what's the solution then? Do we need to tie the stated motives to the actual underlying real motives? Well, policymakers are the people who should be most reading our book. For most of the rest of you, evolution designed you to be unaware of these things, and you're probably on average better off just remaining unaware. So just forget this whole radio show, if you must. But some of us stand up and say, I have studied education or if I have studied medicine or politics and I have a reform or I have recommendations about how we should be doing this different. And for those people, they have more of an obligation to understand what's really going on. And their job isn't more difficult than the job they thought they had. Uh, their job, instead of designing reforms that give us more of the things we say we want, they should be designing reforms that continue to let us pretend to get the things that we pretend to want while actually giving us more of the things we actually want. 
A uh, reform like that is the sort that people would actually be willing to adopt. They might not be willing to say so in public for that reason, but still uh, that has a much better chance of actually changing things. So what are the odds of that then? It's hard to tell, but clearly over the millennia and centuries and decades, our institutions have changed a lot. They may not have changed because somebody did it on purpose uh, with a certain end in mind, but we have a lot of variety in our institutions and our practices, and some of them work better than others for the reasons we actually have. And I'm optimistic that in the long run, that continued process of just random variation and uh, selecting the ones that work better and copying the ones that work better will make our institutions slowly better over time. Eventually, we do hit upon the right solutions. That yet the amazing thing, if you realize, is we we are this wrong about why we're doing much of our lives, and yet uh, our civilization largely functions. We're rich and comfortable, even though we don't really know what we're doing. All right. Well, uh, we are really excited about time. I'm just curious if you have some final words uh, uh, regarding your book, The Elephant in the Brain. Uh, it's relatively well written, better than my first book. So you'll find it pretty engaging. As I said, uh, maybe you won't necessarily want to remember everything we read if it might disturb you. But for some of you, you have an especial need to understand how the world works. You might be a manager or a salesperson. And for you, you need to understand people's motives better. And also, you might be a nerd like me. <laughs> Most people go through the social world and it kind of works because they intuitively understand what it how to do things and things just go right. They don't really consciously know why they go right or what they're doing, but still they t usually do roughly the right thing. But nerds like me who don't have as many social skills, we often do things wrong because we don't just intuitively know how to do the right thing. For nerds, it might be better to consciously understand how the world around you works by reading our book. Hope everyone, nerds and, and non-nerds alike, will uh, take a look. Uh, the new book is called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And uh, the author is Kevin Sim Simler and our guest today, uh, Dr. Robin Hansen. And uh, Dr. Hansen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's been great to be here. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.